open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, Micah prayed, but I'm going to pray again. Lord, bless the study of your word, please, and cause us to come alive. And we thank you that your word is living and breathing. And we thank you, Lord, that you minister to us, and especially tonight, Lord, just the, uh, the opening portion of this epistle. Um, it's vital for this day and age. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be prepared to receive all you have for us. And so we thank you, Lord, in advance for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting passage, and in the next study, in the following week, I'll go more through the history and the details of it, but I want to jump right into the study of it, and I'll give you the background and the date and the time and all that in our next study, but I immediately was captivated by it, and uh, I felt it necessary just to jump into the study itself without giving a context of when it was written. Suffice it to say, it's a no, I'm not going to cover it. I'll tell you when it was written later. Uh, we're just going to pick up in the passage. I'm going to read through uh, the first seven verses, which is what we're going to study tonight. And um, I just I want to give you a fair warning. Um, it's, it's a difficult epistle. Uh, the, the very first section of it just uh, kind of, it's not something you really want to read. I'm just telling you right now, it's not going to be pleasant. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, It begins with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets into the part that I struggle with. Blessed or oh, how happy. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. We're doing great. The God of all comfort, loving it. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, not liking it, that we may also be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that you are partakers of the sufferings. So also you will partake of the consolation. Maybe you didn't feel the same way I did about the reading of it, but it kind of threw me off. Um, He's the God of mercies and comfort for one sole purpose, that we would be equipped to comfort others in the midst of our tribulation and our suffering, which abounds in Christ and will abound in us. Amen. So, apparently you guys are really thrilled about it. Um, so this, uh, this intended, this letter was intended to be shared among all the churches, and, and when he says who are in Achaia, and this is a region of the Corinthian Peninsula, and it's a portion that Paul's writing this letter, and we'll cover that more in detail later, but it was to be read by all the churches in that area, not simply uh, the church at Corinth. He begins um, by laying out his declaration of an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we've covered that, um, and, and uh, he also speaks of Timothy, and we'll get into that in time, um, but he speaks of this area in Achaia and all this region. And he says these two words that are always uh, very similar in many of Paul's epistles, grace and peace. Uh, you have peace with God, then you have the grace of, or the grace of God leads to the peace of God. 
And these are, it's, others say it's kind of the Siamese twins of, of, the, of the epistles of Paul. Um, but I'm going to jump right into verse 3 because that's what I want to cover tonight. And that's what the Lord put on my heart. So he begins with this idea, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And um, first he praises God for mercy. And just to give you an idea of the difference between grace and, uh, uh, grace and mercy, uh, grace is... is is getting what you don't deserve. You got that? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy's different. Mercy's not getting what you deserve. So which is greater? Grace or mercy? Mercy. Cuz you really don't want what you deserve. And we got to deal with that first. So mercy is greater than grace because really there's, there's no grace without mercy. And God gives us his mercy. We don't get what we deserve. And why do we get mercy? Because he is a God of justice. So if we're not going to get what, we're, what, what is due us, then does that make him just? Well, it only makes him just if his son takes the penalty. So we receive mercy because Christ took the penalty. So we don't get what we deserve Christ got what we deserved. You track that? So he died in our place. He took the suffering. He took the beating. He took it all. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. His blood was shed for our sins. He, he who was without sin became sin. And so this is that idea that mercy is greater than grace because the first thing he did was set us right. And he declares that he is a God of mercy. And, and Paul is declaring this from a firsthand basis he says the, the words in, in this passage, he said, the God of all comfort. Um, it's, it's paraclesis, uh, where you get the word paraclete, which is the comforter, the Holy Spirit, para, come alongside, par, parallel lines. We covered this on Sunday. So the Spirit of God is, uh, the Holy Spirit is a restrainer of evil. He's the paraclete. He's the one who comes alongside to comfort. He restrains evil. Um, he lifts up the name of Christ. He leads us into all truth. And, um, and the idea behind this word of comfort, I like what this author says. He says it's more than soothing sympathy. It has the idea of strengthening, of helping, and of making strong in the midst of trial. The idea behind the word communicated by the Latin word for comfort, fortis, means it makes you brave. So when you've endured a battle and you've survived it, it makes you brave. Uh, Michelle and I last night were watching uh, a video of uh, presidents who were in World War II, uh, who fought in World War II. And interestingly enough, if you go down the list, the last one to die uh, who, who, who fought in World War II was uh, uh, George Bush Sr. And he was the youngest pilot in naval aviation history. He was uh, three days from his 19th birthday when he received his, uh, his wings to fly. He was actually shot down. Um, so you had Carter, who served in World War II. You had Gerald Ford, who served in World War II. You had Richard Nixon, who served in World War II. You had um, Eisenhower, who served in World War II. You had Lyndon Johnson, who served in World War II. You had John F. Kennedy, who served in World War II. You had Bush, who served in World War II. All these presidents served, and they saw combat, for the most part, with the exception of Reagan, because he was so nearsighted. He couldn't serve, but he did propaganda films to um, strengthen the, the war effort. 
but all the others saw combat. Matter of fact, Lyndon Johnson, uh, as a commander, uh, a naval lieutenant commander, uh, got on board a, a bomber in the Pacific just to see what it was like, and he didn't have any flying wings or anything. He he worked in supply, but he was allowed to get on because at the time he was a congressman and a reservist in the Navy, and they let him get on board, and then they got fire. Uh, they were getting shot at. One of the engines was shot. The plane he was supposed to be on, uh, but he had to go to the bathroom. He got off the plane to go use the bathroom. When he came back, that plane took off, so he had to get on another one. The plane that he should have been on was shot down. The one he was in lost an engine. Uh, he got back safely, and Roosevelt gave him a silver star. Nobody else on the plane, the pilots, the gunners, got anything. He got a silver star and you know, wore that to his dying day. Um, and then, you know, John F. Kennedy was on PT-109. And the idea is in the midst of war, and what they did is they went through Eisenhower and they went through Kennedy, they went through Johnson, Ford, uh, Nixon, Reagan, Carter, uh, all of these presidents, Bush, and, and what World War II did to prepare them to be presidents of the United States. They were part of the greatest generation. And what, what war did, actually Carter is the last living uh, president. I, I was mistaken with Bush. Uh, although Carter didn't see combat. Um, I meant that Bush was the last one to see combat. Carter didn't see combat. And, and all these presidents were forged in, in combat. And, and in the process of this, it's this idea that they're strengthened. And that's where you get this fortis, this Latin word for comfort. It's a strength that comes in the midst of trial. And that strength comes after you've survived the trial. You know, it's that the, the pop song, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And this is that idea. And, and Paul is a man who is expecting to be dead the next day. He's writing this letter from prison. We'll cover that later. But he spends the largest portion of his time while in prison praising God, as Spurgeon pointed out. And he's declaring that he's the God of all comfort. Um, and this paraclete, this paraclesis, you find it in John fourteen sixteen. Uh, I will send you another helper. And we covered that on Sunday night uh, with Bishop Huggins. And the purpose of this comfort that God extends to us, uh, you can see it in Luke chapter 2. God in every aspect of his being is full of comfort, strength, and help for us. Uh, Luke 2, 25, 1 John 2, 1, and Hebrews 2, 18, the God uh, that God, the Son, is our paraclete. He is our comforter. He's the one who comes alongside. That he may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Um, this idea of enabling others by comforting them and telling them it's going to be all right. Uh, you've received that comfort. You've been through this trial. You can tell them there, there, there is a light at the end of this tunnel. And we receive, um, in a sense, we receive the comfort God wants us to give through another person. He's created us to be relational, and oftentimes you don't find the comfort of the Lord because you're proud, and you don't want to tell anyone about your trials, and then oftentimes they're the ones who have the answers to it, but we want to go through thinking we know it all and we figured it all out, and yet this is where God wants to impart this comfort, and he does it through the body of Christ. Um, one theologian wrote, what a miserable preacher we uh, what a miserable preacher must he be who has all his divinity by study and learning and nothing by experience. It's, it's funny that we worship youth in our culture today. And when a pastor gets to a certain age, we want to kind of, you know, uh, throw him out of the car and find somebody younger and more hip. And, and I remember when uh, a, a church here in town, uh, a minister was overseeing our prayer fellowship Every minister in the community loved this man, and the wisdom that he would impart um, 
um, to all the pastors in the community was just like he was throwing gold coins. Uh, he had such a, an impact on me. And when we heard that the church had gotten rid of him and, and adopted for a younger minister, we were just so grieved. And it decimated the pastoral community. Um, and, and I think this is, it, it's at this stage where I almost feel like that, that man was more equipped than, than the, the combination of all the pastors in the community. But somewhere along the line, we're not looking for comfort or wisdom. We're just looking for something hip and nothing of substance. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. And Paul writes in verse 5, he says, uh, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Paul wrote of his sufferings in, in, this, in this epistle, and he only touched on a few of them, but it was in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 picks up at verse 23. Paul says, stripes, prisons, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, perils of water, uh, robbers, and perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, and weariness, and toil, and sleeplessness often, and hunger, and thirst, and fastings often, and cold, and nakedness. It's almost like, why are we here? Who wants to be a Christian? But this is, this is what you're called into. And, and we don't really equate the Christian life with suffering, but actually... We are infused into this, this world as leaven to cause the people to rise to the glory of the Lord. In a fallen world where sin abounds and people are hurting, uh, we step into the midst of it. And, and, you know, hurting people hurt people. Let me just say it again and meditate on that. Hurting people hurt people. So if you want to make a difference and you want to minister to people, you're going to get hurt. I, I, that's, that's the underlying theme of the ministry. You know, Michelle and I entered into it with, you know, optimism. It's great to preach the Word of God. But I think the greatest accomplishments that have happened in the ministry is surviving the pain. Because as you survive the pain, you're able to comfort others in those midst. I, I ran into a, a young man out in the foyer uh, after a Sunday service. He was just devastated. And he said, you told a story one time about being engaged to somebody else and that that person, and, and he, he recounted the whole story. I said, yeah. And he, he, he can't get the words out. He's choked up and he says, uh, how... How did you get through having your heart broken? And I said, you're, you're pretty sad right now. He goes, I am. I said, you feel like you don't want to live? He goes, I do. I said, it just feels like you can't even get up. He goes, yeah. Come here, I got to tell you something. It's really important. He leans in. He goes, what? And I go, you're not crazy. This is really normal. And he smiles. He goes, it is. I go, it is. It's completely normal. And there will be a light at the end of this dark tunnel. And you're going to get through it. 
And you're going to be standing in a foyer 15 years from now when I'm eating pudding in a rest home. And you're going to be imparting this to somebody else. And I said, you just got to endure. Like a good soldier, you got to endure. And I, I laid this out to him. And you'd think I'd have something more brilliant to say. But it really comforted him. It was one of these things that just caused him to settle and his heart rested in, in the realization that, you know, this is a fallen world um, and God wants us to endure. Um, John Calvin wrote, we are not brought to real submission until we have been laid low by the crushing hand of God. Paul writes, we know that you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. And according to this passage, the bottom line is suffering is promised in the Christian life. We suffer. You can read Romans 5. Um, it, is, it is a difficult proposition at best. And, 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 but here's the joy. The joy is your suffering is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's purposeful. It's equipping you to impart to others. It's fashioning you as a unique instrument. You know, I see people going through the thick of it. They just, you know, they're, they're saying, I'm under the pile. And, and, and I look at them and I say, great. This is awesome. You're being fashioned. And they, they can't see it that way. But the idea is it's all perspective. The realization that you're being fashioned and equipped for greater ministry. You know, there, there are a number of things that as we were going through them, Michelle and I would think and look at each other and just think, we, we can't do this. I remember one time we were in San Jose. Um, we had finally gotten a rental house. We were living in, in a windowless apartment on the complex. And it was, I've shared the story with you, and it was not pleasant at all. We end up being able, on this meager income, to afford a rental house on the two busiest streets in the area, right across the street from a biker bar called the Cardinal, I don't even remember what it was called, and, and every night, just big Harley, and the windows weren't dual pane, and the house, literally, when you stood in the front, you looked at the house, it was leaning. The house was leaning, and the woman was a little eccentric, and she let us rent it, and we couldn't use her garage because she had all these old coins, and... Uh, I, I didn't know who she was, you know, I didn't know much about her, and we are just to stay out of the garage, we did, but the house itself, and we'd have to take our laundry across the street to the laundromat, because there was no laundry facilities, uh, but, but we were thrilled because, you know, it was, it was a house, and the kids could play in the backyard, not much of a backyard, it was just dirt, and it, when it would rain, it would be mud, um, and here's this house leaning, and you can hear the Harleys, and all night long, the cars driving by, and, and, it was, it was tough, and I remember, you know, the, the laundry had piled up. I think at this point, I don't know if D Daniel had been born yet, but we had the girls, and, and the laundry was piled up, and we both had the flu. And it wasn't the flu, it was that thing that almost killed people flu. The, the one, I've never, I've never felt this close to death in all my life. And I remember both of us lying in the hallway of this leaning, dumpy house. And you didn't want to lay on the carpet because it was really nasty. But at this point, we're dying, so it doesn't matter. 
And we're, 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 laying, we're, we're laying on this carpet, both of us just so sick, wondering if we're, we, we can't move. We're dehydrated. We can't, there's nothing we can do. And we, just this idea that we're, we're both going to die here. And they're going to find the piles of laundry. And, <laughs> and, and we look at we talk about it now, and we laugh. And it was an experience. Uh, most of the, the guys I'm, I'm connected with, we went through this ordeal together living in the, the, that's how Craig and I got connected. Although they had a little bit better because they had their own house and they had a place to go away to. We lived on the property, never got to leave. I'm just telling you, you didn't get the whole Monty, but we, we're, you're still part of the club. It's all good. And, and this, this, was, this was intense. But I have to tell you, being here for the last 18 years, I can't tell you how many times I've reflected back on those trials that I counsel others with that are going through it because that is that, that strength, that fortis from the Latin understanding of this idea of comfort, this fortis. We were strengthened in this process. When I watch Michelle counsel other ladies um, in, in these trials, other pastor's wives, this is not uncommon. And, and 29 years of marriage come April 21st, this, the, the comfort has been massive. And what God has done to strengthen us to strengthen others. And, and each time we go through it, it's almost like you smile at this point. Because you're comforted. And as I was watching the, the process of, of World War II, Eisenhower being you know, forged in battle, his very first engagement in Africa to come through the underbelly of Hitler's Germany, and it was Churchill's idea, and he comes in as an allied commander, and he, he comes to invade what is considered Vichy France, which is the Nazi sympathizers as France has fallen. And and they're hoping that, that, that they'll surrender and not hold to the Nazi regime. And, and de Gaulle sends a letter saying, just surrender. And the very first activity, immediately, Eisenhower loses 1,500 men. And, and, and it's devastating. And that word gets back to the United States, and he's struggling. And then he goes to make uh, appeasement to, to the admiral, Admiral Delon, who is the Vichy admiral overseeing the forces in North Africa, and everyone thinks, why are you even dealing with this man? And he finally gets some victory, but then, uh, as we know, the Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel, another 12,000 U.S. soldiers are dead. This is the equivalent of Antietam, and Eisenhower's having to face this, and no one's had to do this. He didn't have anyone he could call. We hadn't been in a major conflict since, you know, 1918, or yeah, 1917. He didn't know who to contact or who, who to rely on or ask these questions of. And finally, as they, they get through Tunisia and, and Rommel has a, a counter uh, offensive and, and devastates three of our armored divisions, wipes them out. Finally, when they get into Sicily and they get to the tip of, of Italy coming up, the American troops are fortis. The, the new recruits are coming in. These seasoned guys are telling them, listen, it's going to be tough. This is what you have to be prepared for. You won't need this. You're not going to need that. You're going to need this. Keep your head down. And they would just start to instruct these re replacement soldiers. And all of a sudden, they're getting strengthened, fortis, through the comfort that they're getting and the equipment that they're getting, going through these trials. And by the time they get to northern Italy, ready to invade and then come in um, 
in, in the invasion of Normandy and sandwich the, the Nazis, all of the American troops are now seasoned. They're fortis. They've, they've given comfort to one another. They have been tried. They have gone through tribulations. And now they're prepared for greater activity. And they vanquish what was a superior German army. And now they have been equipped to do that. That's what God's doing with us through these trials. Through all these tribulations, it's equipping us for greater things. And, and it's, it's, everything about it is beneficial. I share this with you just in this opening aspect because Paul is dealing with a church that really needs to be strengthened. They're looking at every, every area where it seems as though they're losing. And we've gone through this in our previous study of 1 Corinthians that this city, it, it, I don't see a clock back there and I want to make sure I'm, it, can we get a thing? 745, good. We're going to finish really early because I just don't have a lot. Um, no, I've got some slides I want to show you and I've got a little video. But in, uh, in, in Corinth, they were inundated by, by the secular world. And it almost seemed as though the church was just dissolving and everybody was struggling. And we went through this. We saw the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul comes in with this second epistle. And what he's pointing out is we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the one thing I want to emphasize is this gift of comfort. And this, this gift of comfort comes in suffering. You receive the comfort in the midst of your trials and your tribulation, your suffering, and then you, you transfer it to somebody else. And this is what equips the church and strengthens the church and gives it this fortis and this ability. Coming, being laid low by the crushing hand of God. Now understand this. Understand this. What, no one's ever seen people come into church before? I've watched you go, <laughs> Somebody's here. Sorry. Here's, here's this, this thing that, that has revolutionized ministry for me. Take the biggest trial you faced. And, and we've, we've had a few of them, and I imagine we've got a few more awaiting us. That trial only gets to you when God allows it to pass through his sovereign hand. This one's for you. You're like, oh, the God of mercy, God of all comfort. <laughs> Where's the God of prosperity? Well, the prosperity comes in your equipping to help others through the trials in a fallen world. It's not about you, it's about others. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. You comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received. How'd you receive it? The trial. What trial? The trial that passed through the sovereign hand of God. He fashioned you. It's this crushing hand of God, as Calvin said. Being laid low by the crushing hand of God. And, and trials humble us. They humble us. They make us wholly dependent on him. And with that young man in the foyer, it, I, I know what he was describing. You can't breathe. You don't want to eat. You don't want to get up. You don't want to live. And yet you, you, you wake up in obedience. You press into the word of God in obedience. His word becomes more precious to you than you could have ever have imagined. And then what happens is you're building an army. An army of people who are equipped similar to the American forces coming up through the underbelly of, Nazi, uh, of the Nazi territories. 
I wanted to show you, I'm not sure if I want to do the video first. I'm going to show you the video, I guess. Um, and, and, and in showing you the video, I want, I want to kind of set the stage. Um, again, let me read to you the passage, and then I'm going to show you how the video ties in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation. Here's why. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolations also abounds through Christ. Now if we're afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. God's afflicting me so I can be a blessing to you. <laughs> You're special. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. We get afflicted so that we can serve. We get afflicted so we can impart comfort. Right? Do you understand this? Hello. So Michelle and I, gosh, more than 10 years ago, more than a dozen years ago, we're looking at our home our four children, after Michael was born, we couldn't have any more biological kids. We're thinking to ourselves, you know, Lord, we know that children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full. Lord, and we kind of looked at each other, and we didn't really even know what we were saying. And we were giggling last night, and I'll tell you why in a minute. We didn't really know what we were saying. We just kind of said, and I looked at her and said, honey, are you open to adopt? She goes, yeah, I guess. I mean, if God wants us to. I love that answer. Of course he does. <laughs> Should we adopt? Let's ask the Lord. Hello. Every one of us has been adopted into his family. He loves adoption. And so basically at that point, we just looked at each other and we said, God, we're willing. It was just kind of a surrender of our heart. Little did we know that all hell would be thrust upon us. And, and we, didn't, we didn't go light, you know, where you go and you, you have a connection to a family and then, you know, they have a baby and, you know, and they're, you know that it's just, they, it was just a mistake and the child, so you're going to get a, no, no, we went for, we went for a 12-year-old. Somebody who's had an imprint and has had 12 years to be able to experience the hell of the world. And, and not just the hell of the world. Where the grandfather died, the parents left, the grandfather died, the grandmother was an alcoholic, molestation occurred, prostitution, violation in the orphanage, beatings, and oh boy. And we didn't know any of that. We just kind of, hey, how are you? You want to be part of our family? Because my, my girls met Natasha. And they said, Daddy, can we adopt her? It's like, we brought home a puppy. And I remember one family that was at the same time considering adopting the child that was friends with Natasha. And, and they were just gung-ho and so excited. And we've got the baby. And, we, and, and they actually, all the people that were adopting through International Christian Adoption had gone through the books and looked at all the pictures. And they had interviewed and they'd done back. We had no clue. Natasha was at a vacation Bible school. She was the only kid in the whole group that didn't have a family slotted. They were all there for kind of a practice run to see if the child fit in the family and... 
And Natasha was just there for the trip. And we, we, had no, we didn't know anything. Even when the judge called us, we had no idea. And then when they sent us all the paperwork and everything, we're like, what is this? You know, and, and then next thing we know, we got a, a daughter. She's 12 years old. We adopted her. And things worked great for a season. And we started noticing some little oddities. And about 16 or 17, she goes off the reservation. She just goes dark. We lose her for about a year and a half, two years. Literally thinking we're going to hear from the coroner that she's dead. Um, I mean, it, it, and then... And then here, we're kind of in the back end of it, and, uh, and Natasha's enrolled at Liberty University. She's doing great. She's walking with the Lord. When she's home, she sits and has tea with Michelle. I'm, and I sit down, and I'm watching them having tea, giggling and laughing, mother, daughter. And I'm looking at this, thinking, God, this is a complete miracle. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Knowing her, knowing what she's been through, that she's sitting here having tea with Michelle, laughing, and loves her and calls her mom, mommy. And I'm dad, dad, daddy. I remember the first time she said that. And the, the reason why I say that is because last night, Michelle and I sat down, and, and I said, honey, I, I got a movie I want you to see. And, and I, I turn it on. Now, that, granted, if you watch the movie, there's going to be things you don't like about it. It's like eating chicken, eat a whole chicken, eat the meat, spit out the bones. There's bones in it. But for the most part, this, this movie was phenomenal. Um, and I'll, I'm going to show you the, pre, the, the preview of the movie, and then I'm going to tell you what touched me about it. Um, so are we ready to show this? Good. Uh, the movie's called Instant Family with Mark Wahlberg. It's out now. So take a look at it. I love what you two are doing with this house, but what are you going to do with five bedrooms? You guys are obviously never having kids. What was that look? I did not do a look. You're doing a look right now. There's no look. Have a good fight, guys. There's so many kids in foster care, and they're having an orientation. Ellie, people who take in foster kids are really special. The kind of people who volunteer when it's not even a holiday. We don't even volunteer on a holiday. Over a half million children are currently in foster care. The county puts these on because they can match a lot of kids and parents quickly. Look at the big kids. Everybody's avoiding them. I'm going to go and say hi. But they're teenagers, okay? They use drugs, and they watch people playing video games on YouTube. We're not equipped for any of that. Hi! Just FYI, we can all hear you. Hmm? It's okay. Go mingle with the kitties and uh, don't give it another thought. Bye-bye. She was cool. Lizzie comes with two younger siblings. Three kids? Too much. Oh, oh my gosh. God. They're adorable. Why would you show us that? That's wrong. Here we are. Make yourself at home because you're at home. Do you like the Clippers? Oh, I'm more of a Lakers fan. Oh, no. You hit me because I like the Clippers. I think the Clippers are awesome. They were smart for trading Blake Griffin. Their best player. <laughs> but I the fire department comes, okay? You're just another white lady who wants to adopt charity orphans to make you feel good about yourself. Pretend, mom. We might have a little bit of a knack for this. Oh, eh, I beg to differ. <laughs> this stuff takes time. Lizzie yeah. had to parent Juan and Lita all by herself. This is never going to be easy, but with some structure and love, you could make your house a home. But I'm pissed. You know what I like to do? Really? All right, let me fix it, okay? Thanks, Daddy. I just got my first daddy. Oh, what? You suck. I want some of that. Hey, honey, can I help you with anything? Nope. 
phone? Look at what this boy texted her. Is this that kid, Jacob? Hey, I saw the picture you sent her, Jacob. You're lucky I'll end your life right now, Carrot Top. We're going to call your mom. You're going down today. So what do you think of that, Jacob? My name's not Jacob. What? Okay. Uh, So in this movie, and and you see it, and you think it's giggly and it's fun, and what motivated them, and this is is interesting, because Michelle and I, there are so many parts of it that got us. But they're sitting in this possible adoption uh, they're with the county and they've gone through uh, the foster parenting. And then this couple comes in with their older adopted daughter. And she says, you know, I went through trials and when I was addicted and da 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 And they never left me and they stayed with me and they loved me until... And, and things are, you know, and it was such a moving story that Mark Wahlberg immediately goes, we're in. And she's, and it's so excited about this story, it motivates them and inspires them. And they, they pick the older girl, and then she comes with two siblings. They're like, we'll do it, you know, based on this story. All hell breaks loose. I mean, literally, all hell breaks loose. I, I can't even describe it to you. And, and they're, they're at a place where their lives are being torn apart. Their relationships being torn apart. Their house is imploding. And, and it... it it was so relatable to us because Natasha would, the more you'd love her, the more she didn't want anything to do with you. This isn't real. And, and her, her response was vile. And her anger was palatable. And, and the self-destruction was unbelievable. And we would look at each other going, what have we done to our family? There's one point where they're laying in bed going, we could give the kid back. We could tell them that they went to another family and they're going through the whole thing and we could do this. And they're like, yeah, we can do this. And they turn to each other, they go, we're not doing that. And they go, no, we're not doing it. And it was almost like Michelle and I, and they just looked at each other and goes, our life's going to be a living hell for the rest of our life. There were times Michelle and I, this is, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> it's, it's over. And we didn't, maybe she's going to kill the children. What, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and it was insane. And, and in the point where we were seeing this in the movie and relating back to our lives, the, the couple in the movie, they get up in the middle of the night and they go and find this couple that had the daughter that told them the inspiring story and they knock on the door and they go, we need help, we need comfort. And they burst through the door and they sit down and they say, where is she, is she upstairs, we want to talk to her. The story she told, we need some motivation, we need some comfort. <clears throat> and where is she? And these two seasoned couples, you can just see them. They're just seasoned. They've been through this. And they go, she relapsed. And she's back in a, a drug rehab. And they look at them and they go, this is, what do you mean she's relapsed? You, you inspired us to do this and you're telling us, and they're, and they're starting to get upset with them. And you won't like this, but the seasoned woman goes whoosh, and slaps her across the face. And she stops. The, the young lady, Wahlberg's wife, slaps her. And it stuns her. And she says, stop it. You, you think you're going through hell? You think this is hard? This is every day of that young girl's life. They live with this. You signed up for it. This is what it's about. Now, strangely, it was comfort because as they're leaving, they they were reassured. And they got it. You know, we want comfort zones. We think that's what Christianity is, comfort zones. 
There's no comfort zones in Christianity. The comfort comes when you give it to others. And you avail yourself to trials and tribulations because you're stepping into their world. And what's, what just so blessed us last night is we got to see a capsulation of what has been for us almost 15 years in, in less than two hours. And you giggle. We live through it. We're still going through it at times. But what's the result of that? I can't tell you how many people we've had the chance to sit down with. And you know what? There's one girl on this planet who who can now comfort others with the comfort she herself has received. How'd she receive that? We receive comfort in the tribulation. She got it. It's rebuilding a fallen world. No, this isn't a tough epistle. This is a profound and powerful epistle. I jumped into it right away because it ministered to me. Is this working? Up on the screen, you got uh, Roger Sherman. You got a Charles Carroll, Benjamin Rush, Elbridge Jerry, So, these were all signers of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary. We pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They all sign this. What's fascinating about these men... Who are these men who risk so much for posterity? Today they are often presented as self-serving atheists, secularists, or at best deists, but in reality they were almost all Christians. In fact, all but two or three of the signers were Orthodox Christians, and 29 of the 56 total held seminary degrees. They were all men of means, Robert Treat Payne, the first one in the upper left that you saw, he wrote, I am constrained to express my adoration of the supreme being, the author of my existence and full belief of his providential goodness and his forgiving mercy revealed to the world through Jesus Christ, through whom I hope for a never-ending happiness. Charles Carroll was to his right. He wrote, On the mercy of my Redeemer I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works that I have done in obedience to his precepts. He lived the longest of any of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Below him, Samuel Adams, I rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ for pardon of all my sins. Dr. Benjamin Rush, the father of education in America, wrote, My only hope of salvation is in the infinite transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. These are the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. And it was written by Benjamin Rush when he recounted to John Adams about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. When they gathered in the room, he wrote, 
Scarcely a word was said of the solicitude and labors and fears and sorrows and sleepless nights of the men who projected, proposed, defended, and subscribed the Declaration of Independence. Do you recollect the pensive and awful silence which pervaded the house when we were called up one after another to the table of the President of Congress to, to subscribe what was believed by many at the time to be our own death warrants? The silence and the gloom of the morning was interrupted, I well recollect, only for a moment by Colonel Harrison of Virginia, who said to Mr. Jerry at the table, I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, when we are all hung for what we are now doing. From the size and weight of my body, I shall die in a few minutes, but from the lightness of your body, you will dance in the air an hour or two before you are dead. Death was a very real possibility, and so the 56 men who signed the declaration did so only after much thought and consideration, and after all, they had done more to lose, excuse me, after all, they had more to lose than anyone in the colonies. They were the brightest minds, had the greatest talents, and many had great wealth, and most had families they loved dearly. Why would you do this? Why would you adopt why would, you, why would you make your life uncomfortable? Why would you venture into an act of faith to put everything on the line? Why would you venture to do something so insane? Why would you give up your fortunes and your wealth? Why would you sign this against the greatest military on the face of the earth when you're 13 meager colonies? Why? The word why. We know how to do it. We know what to do. But why do we do what we do? What inspires you? What moves you? Of these 56 men that were inspired, with the exception of two, 54 of them without, without question walked with the Lord. And it was a declaration of liberty for all mankind. They wanted the world to be set free. And they signed the end of it by saying, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. What happened to them? Seventeen lost everything they owned. Every signer was prescribed as a traitor. Every one was hunted. Most were driven into flight. Most were, at one time or another, barred from their families or homes. John Adams wrote, that the day of the independence will be the most memorable epic uh, in history of America. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations, a day of deliverance, by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward and forevermore. Inscribed on the Liberty Bell, do we have that? There it is, inscribed on the Liberty Bell on July 8, 1776. Now the, the Declaration of Independence that these men signed to bring comfort to the world, and they could only bring it after they faced trial. The Liberty Bell rang out from the State House in Philadelphia calling together the assemblies of citizens to hear the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence. Never before in the history of the world, the world was ruled by oligarchies. A republic is established constitutionally. It had been approved four days before. Its ringing led the celebration that followed. A scripture was engraved, you can see it, on that bell, Leviticus 25.10. 
Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. This verse was very appropriate because it speaks of the Jubilee year of liberty where debts were forgiven, land was returned to the original owners, and enslaved Israelites were set free. And with the birth of America, a new era of liberty was was beginning in the world. And as Reverend Clark observed, from this day will be dated the liberty of the world. God's liberty could be proclaimed and eventually secured because the people had been prepared from within to support freedom, a foundation of religion, morality, biblical truth that had been established in their lives. Um, The president of the Continental Congress, I want to read this to you. He said, you know what, I'm going to read... I'm going to read, yeah. He said, let us unite all our endeavors this day to remember with reverential gratitude to God all the wonderful things he has done for us in a miraculous deliverance from a second Egypt, another house of bondage. This day is kept as a day of joy and gladness because the great things the Lord has done for us when we were delivered from the threatening power of the invading foe. Who knows but the country for which we have fought and bled may hereafter become a theater of greater events than have yet been known to mankind. May these invigorating prospects lead us to the exercise of every virtue, religious, moral, and political. And may these great principles in the end become instrumental in bringing about that happy state of the world when from every human breast joined by the grand chorus of the skies shall arise with the profoundest reverence that divinely celestial anthem of universal praise, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men. If you ever struggle with the significance of the Revolutionary War because of ignorance... Suffice it to say, the comfort that you enjoy in a nation that has had the greatest expanse of economic freedom of any nation in the history of the world, that this is a place where people flee, it's because 56 men went through trial and tribulation to comfort a world. They pledged their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor. The amazing thing about this epistle and the life of Paul is what inspired them. What great things does God have in store for you through the trials that he's allowed to hit you through his sovereign hand to bring you low so that you would rise and be equipped and fashioned to comfort others in a world that needs to be comforted and the only way you can comfort them is you've got to go through the trial yourself or you have nothing to say. You're void of substance. If your Christianity is about a comfort zone, find another religion. We have the great privilege to suffer in order to be equipped to bring comfort. What an amazing epistle we are about to undertake the study of.